Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 83. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this on August 10th, 2022, in a secure, undisclosed location outside of Tupper Lake, New York. If you are new to the podcast, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. So I thought that it was great to get those pictures from Pilgrim Spring in the Provincetown area for last week's episode. If you looked at the post for the episode on the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, you saw that Adam Page's photo is the featured image for the episode. If you are a listener and have photos that are relevant to a current episode, or even one we have done in the past, please send them along with permission to use them on the website. It shouldn't be too hard to guess the timeline over the next few months, but we will certainly have more to say about Plymouth, the Pilgrims, and the Wampanoag. And we'll go back to Jamestown for Opa Kenkana's war, and we'll spend some time looking at New Netherland, which is coming at us quickly. So keep the emails coming, and I'd love to see more pictures for those of you who are nearby irrelevant historical sites, or maybe were nearby those sites. We have reached December 1620, a new high watermark on our timeline. Woohoo! The Pilgrims have decided on the location for their first settlement. Unbeknownst to them, the legal status of their venture, in doubt because Master Christopher Jones and the Mayflower failed to navigate the Pollock Rip and turn back to Provincetown, has actually improved. Their original patent authorized settlement at the mouth of the Hudson River, in the northern lands of London's Virginia Company, the same enterprise in charge of the settlements that had grown out of Jamestown. So the pilgrims weren't in the right place, legally speaking. On November 3, 1620, Sir Fernando Gorges, one of the founders of the Popham Sagadahawk colony 13 years before, and at that time and in 1620 also probably the leading high-status promoter of the settlement of New England, John Smith was probably the most famous, but he wasn't a gentleman. Gorges reconstituted the old Virginia Company of Plymouth, which had been mostly dormant since Popham Sagadahawk had failed. The new entity, called the Council for New England, would have royal authority to operate between 40 and 48 degrees of latitude on the east coast of the United States. Those points correspond on the coast to Maniloking, New Jersey, for those of you who go down the shore in the Garden State, and just north of St. John's, Newfoundland. Within a year, the pilgrims would receive a document authorizing them to be exactly where they were already. Meanwhile, in actual Virginia, the settlements around Jamestown have continued to grow under the increasingly fragile peace of Powhatan and Pocahontas, which persisted even after both had died. Opakankana is now in charge and is quietly preparing for war. Thirteen years along, new settlers to Virginia still die from disease in their first summer at an astonishing rate. But the lure of land, now mostly privately cultivated rather than in collective farms, and the huge profits from tobacco continue to attract immigrants. In a census conducted in the spring of 1620, there were 892 Europeans in Virginia, including 670 able-bodied men, 119 women, 39, quote, serviceable boys, 
and 57 children. They grew up fast back then. There were also 32 Africans, 17 women and 15 men, and four Indians, all described as others, not Christians, in service of the English. Of those 928 people, only 117 lived in the original Jamestown, the balance being spread between other towns along the James and, quote, peculiar plantations, which were in effect independent communities farming thousands of acres. We'll come back to that in the future. The census also reported that in the six years of peace, the colony had built up large herds of livestock, including more than 100 cattle at Jamestown alone. I bring up all that bit about the Jamestown settlements in the Chesapeake for several reasons. First, to help you keep in mind where we are in the timeline. Second, because as I said, we are going to go back to Virginia within the next couple of weeks and preoccupy ourselves with our old friend up at Kankanaw. And finally, because the Virginians would end up doing a lot to support the new colony at Plymouth, notwithstanding their somewhat different social conditions and religious beliefs. Finally, and this is a bit of a side note, at some point in 1620, the Dutch captain Cornelius Jacobsen May, M-E-Y, explored the Delaware Bay in view of possible Dutch colonization. He gave his name to Cape May, now M-A-Y, which marks the southern end of New Jersey and would go on to be an important player in New Netherland, which is just around the corner by our standards. Last time, the third exploratory expedition of 16 or so men in the shallop returned to the Mayflower with good news that they had found a suitable place to settle in the area marked on John Smith's map of 1616 as Plymouth. The Mayflower left Provincetown Harbor on December 15th, but the wind was contrary and it took a full day to make the short crossing. They took three days debating alternative locations within Plymouth Harbor and Duxbury Bay, including Clark's Island, where the exploratory expedition had sought refuge in the storm, and the mouth of the Jones River just down from today's Kingston. As usual, if you don't know the region, a map app can be really helpful and interesting. Ultimately, they decided on the third location, Plymouth Patuxet. It had a tall hill with a flat top rising from the shore that was defensible and had great views of Cape Cod and the bay, the views being important to defense, not because they would enhance the value of the condos that pilgrims hoped to develop there. Location determined, they hoped to build houses and other buildings quickly, the sooner to let people off the now very rancid Mayflower. In fact, at this point, the ship must have been so rank that it is safe to assume even the pilgrims were by then saying Mayflower sardonically. This is a particularly solid assumption because at this point, disease and death were stalking the ship. They'd lost only two people on the cold and stormy crossing, one unnamed sailor and one separatist. But disease, cold, malnutrition, and despair are slow killers. James Chilton, one of the older separatists, in fact, I think the oldest separatist at age 64, had died on December 8th the day after Dorothy Bradford fell into the drink. On Thursday, December 21st, Richard Brittridge died. Little is known of him except that he was just 10 days shy of his 39th birthday. 
Then on Friday morning, Mary Allerton gave birth to his stillborn son, and on Sunday, Christmas Eve, Solomon Prower died. He was a teenager. Life was tough no matter what your age. The weather was rough on December 21st and 22nd, so it was only on Saturday, December 23rd, that a working party got to shore. They cut trees and started making lumber for houses. They kept cranking through Christmas Eve and Christmas. Since Christmas had not been celebrated in the Bible, the pilgrims thought it was nonsense and would not be happy that Home Depot puts out its Christmas displays in October. By the end of the 25th, they'd framed their first house. That night, the men camped on shore heard the hoots of Indians, who were not much for Christmas either, apparently, in the surrounding forest. They grabbed their weapons, but nothing came of it. Now let's go to Nathaniel Philbrick to see how the first construction went, at least for those of you who haven't been to the Plymouth Patuxent recreation, which I actually went to a couple of weeks ago. Quote, It took them two more weeks to complete the first building, a 20-foot square common house. It didn't have a proper foundation. There just wasn't the manpower or the time for such a luxury. Known as an earth-fast house, the Pilgrims' first structure probably possessed walls of hewn tree trunks interwoven with branches and twigs that were cemented together with clay. This wattle and daub construction was typical of farmers' cottages in rural England, as was the building's thatched roof, which was made of cattails and reeds from the nearby marsh. The house's tiny, barely translucent windows were made of linseed-coated parchment. The chimney, if in fact the house did have a chimney instead of a simple hole on the roof, was a primitive ductwork made of four soot-blackened boards that funneled the smoke from an open fire on the dirt floor. It was a most dark and smoky place, but for the first time, the pilgrims had a real roof over their heads. Back to me, and however dark and smoky it may have been, it was a huge improvement over the tween decks of the Mayflower. At 20 by 20 feet, the 400-square-foot common house was all by itself. 25% of the space they had for sleeping and personal storage on the Mayflower during the 10 weeks it took them to cross the North Atlantic. By the end of December, even before the first common house would be completed, the pilgrims turned their attention to defense. They began work on a platform at the top of the hill for mounting their cannon. They also planned their town. Now let's go again to Philbrick for his discussion of that. Quote, Miles Standish appears to have had a hand in determining the layout of the town. At lectures on military engineering at the University of Leiden, soldiers could learn from the Dutch Army's chief engineer— that the more easily defended settlement pattern consisted of a street with parallel alleys and a cross street. The pilgrims created a similar design that included two rows of houses, quote, for safety. For the present, Plymouth was without a church and a town green, the features that came to typify a New England town. Indeed, the recreation of old Plymouth shows exactly this design. The town plan had to account for a number of houses. The original idea was that there would be one house for every family, which would make for 19 houses, with each family taking in one or two of the single men. 
Unfortunately, as winter marched on, the pilgrims began to die at a Jamestown-like rate. And by early spring, only 50 of the original 102 remained alive. Christopher Martin, the much-disliked governor of the Mayflower, died in early January, followed quickly by his wife, Mary. The Rigsdale, Tinker, and Turner families were completely wiped out, accounting for eight of the deaths. At least six teenagers were orphaned, and by the Ides of March, there were four widowers. Bradford, Miles Standish, his wife Rose, died at the end of January. Francis Eaton and Isaac Allerton, who was left with three surviving children between the ages of four and eight. Edward Winslow, author of So Much That We Know of Plymouth Today, lost his wife. William White, father of baby Peregrine and five-year-old Resolved White. We need more names like Peregrine and Resolved nowadays, I think. Would leave his wife Susanna White as the only surviving widow. Susanna would marry widower Winslow in May, the first English marriage in New England. And Edward would adopt Peregrine and Resolved as his own children. Of the survivors, many more, including William Bradford, would be sick for long periods and unable to do work or even care for themselves. As at Jamestown, at one point there were perhaps half a dozen able-bodied people left to take care of the sick and do the necessary work of survival. So construction came to a standstill. And yet a few never fell ill, even through all the adversity. Bradford later held up William Brewster and Miles Standish as, in Philbrick's words, sources of indomitable strength, quoting Bradford, And yet the Lord so upheld these persons as in this general calamity they were not at all infected, either with sickness or lameness. And what I have said of these, I may say of others who died in this general visitation, and others yet living, that whilst they had health, Yea, or any strength continuing, they were not wanting to any that had need of them. And I doubt not that their recompense is with the Lord. And it must be said that however rough it became for the pilgrims, none of them resorted to cannibalism as at Jamestown, nor did they attack Indian villages to raid their granaries, and none of them begged to return to England with the Mayflower. Religious fanatics they may have been, but that served them well through very tough times. In the end, only seven houses were built in the first year, plus four common buildings. The Grand Sachem Massasoit was, without question, surveilling the pilgrims from the beginning. The pilgrims strongly suspected the same, but they did not actually see any Indians until mid-February, almost two months after they had first come ashore at New Plymouth. Then about Valentine's Day, Master Jones reported seeing two of them watching from Clark's Island. On February 16th, one of the pilgrims was hunting, hidden in a duck blind about a mile and a half from the settlement. Suddenly, 12 Indian men walked past, but they didn't detect the pilgrim. They must not have been quite close enough to smell what must have been his hideous body odor and he heard the footfalls and chatter of more in the woods behind him. After they had passed by and the woods were quiet again, the pilgrim ran back to the settlement to raise the alarm. 
Standish and Francis Cook were working in the woods near the settlement when they heard the alarm, dropped their tools, and rushed back to grab weapons. But no attack came, and nor did the Indians present themselves. However, when Standish and Cook returned to retrieve their tools, they'd been stolen. The next day, February 17th, a meeting was called for establishing a teeny militia, with Standish dictating responsibilities. This met with some grumbling, insofar as this would be yet another burden on the shoulders of the small number of men capable of doing work, particularly from two new widowers who had small kids to take care of. But in the middle of that meeting, someone spotted a pair of Indians standing on the top of the nearby hill, perhaps a quarter of a mile away across the brook, watching. The meeting adjourned, as it were, and those who were able ran for their weapons. The two peoples faced each other down across the small valley of Town Brook. The Indians gestured for them to approach, and the pilgrims did the same. Nobody budged. Finally, Standish and Stephen Hopkins, the sole Jamestown veteran among them and therefore the most experienced in New World encounters, approached with only one musket, which they laid on the ground to signal peaceful intentions. The Indians still would not approach and instead turned tail, running off to the shouts of many more hidden on the other side of the hill. But still no attack came. Not surprisingly, the pilgrims thought it a good idea to mount their cannon on the top of the hill, and over the next few days, the few fit men, with an assist from Mayflower's sailors, hauled a half-dozen thousand-pound cannons up the hill to the platform. All remained quiet for another month. On March 16th, they had a second meeting on military matters. As it happened the first time, an Indian, this time alone, appeared on the same hill across the brook. Now let's go to Philbrick's account of what would become one of the famous moments early in the history of the Americans. Quote, Unlike the previous two Indians, this man appeared to be without hesitation or fear, especially when he began to walk toward them very boldly. The alarm was sounded, and still the Indian continued striding purposefully down the hill and across the brook. Once he'd climbed the path to the town, he walked past the row of houses toward the rendezvous where the women and children had been assembled in case of attack. It was clear that if no one restrained him, the Indian was going to walk right into the entrance of the rendezvous. Finally, some of the men stepped into the Indian's path and indicated that he was not going to go in. Apparently enjoying the fuss he'd created, the Indian saluted them, and with great enthusiasm spoke the now famous words, Welcome, Englishmen. They could not help but stare in fascination. He was so different from themselves. For one thing, he towered over them. He stood before them a tall, straight man, having not labored at a loom or cobbler's bench for most of his life. His hair was black, short in front and long in back, and his face was hairless. Interestingly, the pilgrims made no mention of his skin color. What impressed them the most was that he was stark naked with just a fringed strap of leather around his waist. When a cold gust of wind kicked up, one of the pilgrims was moved to throw his coat over the Indian's bare shoulders. He was armed with a bow and just two arrows, one headed, the other unheaded. 
The pilgrims do not seem to have attached any significance to them, but the arrows may have represented the alternatives of war and peace. In any event, they soon began to warm to their impetuous guest and offered him something to eat. He immediately requested beer. Back to me. This Indian was Samoset, the Abenaki Sagamore. That's their term for sachem. From Maine, who had come to live for some reason not known to us with Massasoit. The pilgrims were famously running short of beer. Indeed, Master Jones had kept the remaining supply on the ship for the voyage home, so they gave him some spirits with biscuits, butter, cheese, pudding, and a slice of roasted duck, all of which he apparently liked. The leadership had an extended, if broken, conversation with Samoset. In addition to Governor Carver, Bradford, and Winslow, it's probable that Stephen Hopkins was there. He knew at least a few words of Algonquin as it was spoken in the Chesapeake and probably would have helped interpret when Samoset failed to summon the correct English word. Samoset explained in his rudimentary English that the name of this place was Patuxet, that almost everyone who had lived there had died of a plague in the last few years, and that the supreme leader of the region was Massasoit, who lived at a place called Poconoke, about 40 miles to the south. He told them that the Nauset, the people on Cape Cod who had attacked them during the first famous first encounter, were hostile to the English because of Thomas Hunt's perfidy back in 1614. He also reported that there was another Indian back in Poconoke named Squanto who spoke better English than he did. Samoset spent the night with Stephen Hopkins and his family. Perhaps Hopkins volunteered because his Jamestown experience made him more comfortable than the other pilgrims. Or maybe everybody thought that Hopkins might be able to hear more from Samoset one-on-one in the dark of night. Samoset departed the next morning, promising to return in a few days with some of Massasoit's men. Samoset was acting under Massasoit's direction. The Grand Sachem had been watching the pilgrims for three months, wrestling with the strategic issues that we discussed in the last episode. Would the pilgrims be a threat to him, or a potential ally against the hostile and now stronger Narragansett tribe just to his west? He may have wondered whether the pilgrims would even survive the winter. He surely knew about the failure of the Popham colony in 1608, which Samoset would have known about in detail. And perhaps he'd even heard stories of the English mortality in the Chesapeake. So far, he had followed Paramount Chief Powhatan's strategy of watchful waiting. For their part, the pilgrims had been careful to disguise their own weakness. They buried their dead surreptitiously in unmarked graves. And when they had raised alarms, had propped sick men with muskets up against trees, hoping to show greater numbers to Indians who would be watching in the woods. With the advantage of history, we might ask a question that the pilgrims would not yet be in a position to ask. Why hadn't he sent Tisquantum instead of Samoset? The answer would unfold over the next year. Massasoit, like Epinau on Martha's Vineyard, did not entirely trust Squanto, and for good reason. We shall return to this in a future episode. On March 21, 1621... Four days after Samoset's departure, there was a strange episode. Let's go to the account in Mort's Relation. That's the narrative that Winslow and Bradford wrote. 
quoting with a couple of clarifying edits. That day we had again a meeting to conclude of laws and orders for ourselves and to confirm those military orders that were formally propounded and twice broken off by the savages coming. But so we were again the third time, for after we had been an hour together, on the top of the hill over against us two or three savages presented themselves that made semblance of daring us as we thought. So Captain Standish with another, that would probably be Winslow or Hopkins since Bradford was sick in bed, with their muskets went over to them with two of the master's mates that followed them without arms. The Indians wetted and rubbed their arrows and strings and made show of defiance. But when our men drew near them, they ran away. Back to me. The very next day after this challenging display, March 22nd, Samoset returned to Plymouth with Tisquantum and three other Indians. Tisquantum talked freely about his experiences following Hunt's enslavement of him, including his days in London. Small talk concluded. Samoset and Tisquantum informed the pilgrims that Massasoit and his brother Quadaquina were nearby, presumably having schlepped up from Poconoke in good time. About an hour later, the Grand Sachem appeared on Watson's Hill across the creek with his posse of perhaps 60 warriors. Here's how Winslow and Bradford describe what followed, quoting with clarifying edits. We were not willing to send our governor to them, and they were unwilling to come to us. So Squanto went again unto him who brought word that we should send one to parley with him, which we did, which was Edward Winslow, to know his mind and signify the mind and will of our governor, which was to have trading and peace with him. We sent to the king a pair of knives and a copper chain with a jewel in it. To Quattaquina we sent likewise a knife and a jewel to hang in his ear, and withal a pot of strong water, a good quantity of biscuit and some butter, which were all willingly accepted. Our messenger made a speech unto him that King James saluted him with words of love and peace and did accept of him as his friend and ally, and that our governor, that would be John Carver, who'd been elected the first governor of the colony while they were still on Mayflower, desired to see him and to truck with him and to confirm a peace with him as his next neighbor. He liked well of the speech and heard it attentively, though the interpreters did not well express it. After he had eaten and drank himself and given the rest to his company, he looked upon Winslow's sword and armor, which he had on, with intimation of his desire to buy it. But on the other side, our messenger showed his unwillingness to part with it. In the end, he left him, meaning Winslow, in the custody of Quattaquina, his brother, and came over the brook. Some twenty men followed him, leaving all their bows and arrows behind them. We kept six or seven as hostages for our messenger. Captain Standish and Mr. Williamson met the king at the brook with half a dozen musketeers. They saluted him and he them, and then they conducted him to a house where we placed a green rug and three or four cushions. And then instantly came our governor with drum and trumpet after him and some few musketeers. After salutations, our governor kissed his hand. The king kissed him. And so they sat down. The governor called for strong water. That would be 
Aqua Vita, the distilled spirits the pilgrims had brought, probably some bad brandy, actually, and drank to him. And Massasoit drank a great draft that made him sweat all the while after. The governor called for a little fresh meat, which the king did eat willingly and did give his followers. Then, through Squanto and Samoset, the Grand Sachem and the governor hammered out a treaty, which Winslow and Bradford set forth in Mort's relations, quote, one, that neither he nor any of his should injure or do hurt any of our people. Two, and if any of his did hurt to any of ours, he should send the offenders that we might punish him. Three, that if any of our tools were taken away when our people were at work, he should cause them to be restored. And if ours did harm to any of his, we would do the like to him. Four, if any did unjustly war against him, we would aid him. If any did war against us, he should aid us. Five, he should send to his neighbor confederates to certify them of us that they might not wrong us, but might be likewise compromised on the conditions of peace. Six, that when their men came to us, they should leave their bows and arrows behind them, as we should do our pieces when we came to them. After the treaty was signed, the pilgrims escorted Massasoit and Quadraquina from the settlement. Massasoit did not complain that the pilgrims still carried arms, an immediate violation of the treaty they'd just signed. But Quadraquina did. The English acknowledged his good point, actually, and put their muskets away. Massasoit, his brother, and their entourage camped in the woods a half mile away, promising to return in a week's time to plant corn for the pilgrims on one of the cleared fields on the other side of Town Brook. Samoset and Squanto spent the night in the settlement. For Squanto, it was the first night he spent in the town in which he grew up in six years. So ended the momentous day of March 22, 1621. So what are we to make of the challenging Indians the day before? Massasoit clearly had been camped nearby. He had his report from Samoset, which would have conveyed the expressed peaceful intentions of the English. But he also had damn good reason for not trusting the English. In all likelihood, the two or three Indians who had jeered from the hill the day before and strummed their bows were testing the English. Would they be cautious in their response or start blasting away angrily? Standish must have displayed a sufficiently cautious or nonviolent posture, notwithstanding the muskets, that Massasoit had been reassured that he could deal with these English. On the morning of the 23rd, Squano got up and went hunting for eels. That time of year, they were still hibernating in the mud in the tidal creeks, the Indians would squeeze them out by stomping on them in the terrifically cold water. He returned with an armload of eels, which the pilgrims ate that evening, declaring them fat and sweet. This is the first time, but far from the last time, that Tisquantum would teach the English how to rustle up their own food. The Mayflower departed for England on April 5th, its crew as depleted by disease as the pilgrims had been. Also, the ship's cooper, John Alden, had decided to stay in Plymouth. Alden was 22, and although nominally part of the Mayflower's crew rather than a passenger, he had signed the Mayflower Compact, 
perhaps signaling an early intention to stay in New England for the long term. Within a few months, Alden would marry Priscilla Mullins, the 17-year-old daughter of William Mullins. Both her parents and her brother had died that winter, leaving Priscilla orphaned all alone in the new world. John and Priscilla would thrive and count among their ancestors the great American poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. In 1858, 238 years later, Longfellow would publish his epic poem about the pilgrims, The Courtship of Miles Standish, in which his own ancestors, John and Priscilla Alden, would feature prominently. By mid-April, Town Brook and other tidal creeks filled up with fish. Herring returned to spawn. Squanto explained that these fish were critical to growing maize, the land around Plymouth not being of the quality it is between the rivers of eastern Iowa, for example. Corn should be planted in mounds, perhaps a yard in diameter, along with dead herring. Then after the corn sprouted, beans and squash were added. These were the mutually reinforcing three sisters, grown together all over the New World. We discussed them in some detail all the way back in our second episode on the Americans before Columbus. When I was coming up, it was an article of faith that this business of putting the fish in with the seed corn was bona fide Indian agronomy. Even Philbrick says this, although not in quite so many words. But maybe it ain't so. There are two objections which have tended to come from anthropologists and ethnographers rather than historians. The first is that there's no corroborating evidence that any Indians along the Atlantic coast made it a practice to plant corn or any other crop alongside dead fish. The second objection is that there's a decent amount of evidence that some Europeans did fertilize with fish well before 1620. The first objection was raised as early as 1939 by an anthropologist named Regina Flannery. There simply is no evidence, other than the testimony of the pilgrims via Squanto, that Indians did this, notwithstanding the many descriptions of Indian agriculture that come down to us, some of which we've even discussed on this podcast. Regarding the second, an anthropologist named Lynn Sessi published a paper in 1975 that shows that Europeans indeed fertilized with fish and shellfish, both in Europe and the New World. The French were doing it in New France, and the record suggests that the English in Newfoundland, where Squanto lived for a while, also did. Professor Sessi argued that Squanto probably learned about using fish as fertilizer in Newfoundland, and that therefore, quote, Squanto's advice at Plymouth is probably best viewed as an interesting example of culture contact, one in which a native culture bearer conveyed a technological idea from one group of Europeans to another. Of course, you might reasonably ask why the Leiden separatists did not already know this. Well, only a few of them had ever been farmers per se, and it's entirely possible that fertilizer wasn't necessary for the crops they grew and the soils they grew them in back in England. And even those farmers were at some substantial remove from farming, having been laborers and craftsmen and merchants in Holland. Squanto may have been teaching the English pilgrims what he knew to be the practices of other English farmers in the New World. We report, 
you decide. I'll put a link to Professor Sessi's paper on the website for those of you who want to dig further. Now, the origin of the use of fish as fertilizer is not a tremendously important question in the history of the Americans. We will probably never know for sure whether the fish story means that Squanto was in fact teaching the pilgrims the ways of Indians, or merely telling these English about the smart things he saw other English do during his own travels. But there's a lesson in here about competing historical interpretations. A narrative can persist in popular lore and even in basic historical education long after it's been seriously challenged. That can be true of something as non-political as the fish's fertilizer story, and it can also be true of moments that echo through the ages, such as the importance of the Mayflower Compact, or of the 20 and odd blacks who arrived at Jamestown in 1619. My message, which will come as no surprise to long-standing and attentive listeners, is that everyone who is genuinely interested in history as opposed to using history to score political points, ought to keep as open a mind as it is possible for thinking people to do. This is a good place to stop this week. Unless my muse distracts me, we will continue with the pilgrims in the next episode and then head back to Virginia for the very gruesome year of 1622. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. We hope you enjoy listening to the History of the Americans podcast as much as we enjoy making it, and that you tell your worthiest friends, spread the word on your social propaganda website of choice, write us a nice review on Apple, and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. To stay up to date on announcements and other interesting stuff that doesn't make it into a podcast episode, you can follow me on Twitter and on the Facebook page for the podcast. Search in all the usual ways you search for stuff. This is a labor of love, and your support is very motivating. And, of course, you can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. Until next time. <laughs>